Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on June 17th of 2018 under the headline Abigail Scott Dunaway Thought Her Novels Were Her Legacy. Here we go. Abigail Scott Dunaway is a name that's very familiar to most Oregon history buffs. She was a pioneer, a journalist, a newspaper editor, and a tireless advocate for women's suffrage. All of this she managed to accomplish while also fulfilling all the obligations of an invalid's wife and the mother of six children. But Dunaway, during her life, did not expect any of those things to be what she was most remembered for. She expected, or rather hoped, that after her death, her novels would be collected and published, and that future readers would, quote, marvel at the facts therein portrayed as much as the student of today is marveling at the progress of the world since the discoveries of Christopher Columbus or the explorations of Lewis and Clark. That, of course, didn't happen. Instead, most people don't even realize that she wrote any novels. In part, that's because none of her novels are very easy for a modern reader to get through although it's kind of surprising how well they do hold up, considering how different was the era in which they were written. As English professor Deborah Shine of Idaho State University points out, most novels in the 1870s were neither character-driven nor plot-driven. They were action-driven, like parables or allegories. That meant that most of them were, if you will, a song with a message intended to manipulate the reader into better or more virtuous patterns of thought or behavior something modern readers have little tolerance for. It also meant the characters in them had a tendency to be personifications of virtues or vices, the mustache-twirling dastardly villains, the placidly faithful saintly widows, the relentlessly cheerful virtuous youths, and so forth. In other words, these novels are works of advocacy. Or, to put it in Dunaway's own words from the introduction to her first novel, quote, Skeptics, you who laugh at the Bible, who mock at the mission of the lowly Nazarene, ye who merely live that you may amass riches, eat, drink, and die, this book is not for you. I leave older and wiser heads to parry your studied blows, while I turn in respect and confidence to the lenient, intelligent, pious, and elevated for encouragement and assistance. Of all the novels Dunaway wrote, only the first and last were actually published in book form during her life. The first one, in fact, was the first novel commercially published in Oregon, unless one classifies Margaret Jewett Smith's 1854 memoir, The Grains, or Passages in the Life of Ruth Rover, as a novel. Dunaway's first novel was Captain Gray's Company, or Crossing the Plains and Living in Oregon, published by S.J. McCormick in 1859. It was heavily based on the Scott family's journey to Oregon in 1852 over the Oregon Trail. The last novel, From the West to the West Across the Plains to Oregon, published in Chicago by A.C. McClurg in 1905, was basically a rewrite of Captain Gray's Company. Neither of these novels represents her at her best, although it is probably safe to say that they do represent her at her least controversial. 
arguably Dunaway's best work and unquestionably her most influential, was represented by the 21 novels that she wrote and serialized in her newspaper, The New Northwest, and later her magazine, The Pacific Empire. After she retired from journalism, Dunaway spent years revising these novels and submitting them to book publishing houses back east. None were picked up. This most likely is because at the time Dunaway was submitting stories to these conservative, male-run publishing concerns, she was just too hot to handle. To be fair, the stories were pretty hot. Judge Dunson's Secret, an Oregon story, is a black comedy of sorts in which the judge's secret is that he once had a temper tantrum and tore out all his young son's teeth, leading directly to the boy's death. The heroine, who for some reason has feelings for this monster, disguises herself as the dead son's ghost and rattles a bag of teeth in her eventually successful quest to get him to face what he's done, repent, and of course marry her. In Ethel Graham's Destiny, a story of real life, the entrepreneurial heroine is tricked into marriage by a drunken sea captain who treats her like an ATM machine, leaving her penniless at the end of a life in which she's made her fortune several times over only to have him show up and drink it all away. Edna and John, a romance of Idaho flat, has a similar theme. Edna is swept off her feet by John, who turns out to be a callow idiot. While he's off digging hopefully in the gold fields, she makes a fortune as a restaurateur, but when he returns and starts spending it frivolously and abusing her, she learns that if she divorces him, he will get everything, restaurant, money, and even the children. Meanwhile, her mother, after being widowed, is kicked out of her lifelong home because the dower acts have enabled her husband's creditors to seize all her property, and her aunt is left penniless after her late husband turns out to have been a bigamist. At the end, denied a divorce, Edna actually buys a gun. The story ends before we learn whether she uses it or not, and, of course, on whom. Margaret Rudson, A Pioneer Story, is less overtly subversive, but in other ways it's more so. It's the story of a wealthy heiress who is also an inventor, entrepreneur, and physician. Or, to use the terminology of the day, an inventrix, entrepreneuse, and physicienne, and her devoted fiancé. The two of them travel out west to found a socialistic commune in which men and women enjoy equality before the law and domestic chores, cooking, childcare, cleaning, etc., are shared equally by men and women and handled communally. Rudson and her fiancé, who come off somewhat like a 19th-century grown-up version of Nancy Drew and Ned Nickerson, get married and adopt a hyphenated surname, Rudson Horner, which at the time was considered a scandalously radical thing to do. Most of Dunaway's novels, particularly the ones serialized in the New Northwest, are a little rough, like second drafts. That's because they were told in serial form over many weeks, like a soap opera. Something interesting had to happen in every episode. This worked great in its original form, but the relentless procession of intense moments of drama can be wearying if read all at once. There's a reason why no one binge-watches Days of Our Lives or The Young and the Restless. Also, Dunaway didn't always finish writing a novel before starting to publish it. Actually, she may have never done that. So sometimes she found herself boxed in by events of previous weeks and had to break the narrative thread to solve the problem. Still, they were very popular, and made more of a contribution to the campaign for women's suffrage than most people realize. And to the women of Portland in the late 1800s, they rang true to life and sent a strong and welcome message. You are not alone. Key sources in this story included works by Deborah Shine, and of course, the novels of Abigail Scott Dunaway themselves. 
Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulp Lit Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.